as usual, we're going to be giving away a box of books at the end of this podcast to one of our Patreon supporters. So listen all the way to the end and you'll find out if you are one of the lucky winners of a box of books. Hello. Welcome to Robin and Josie's Book Shambles, a delightful podcast. Please enjoy it. Well, let's what hope do you think so. about that for an intro? That was lovely. I think Thank it was you. very welcoming. Um, um, we're joined by uh, Philip Ridley, who uh, playwright, uh, author, film director, artist, uh, a creator of probably it must be in my top five most watched films. Uh, the Reflecting Skin, which I have banged on to you about yeah. in the past, is a remarkable piece of work. And it's uh, so. Before we get onto books, I just want to briefly talk about that because it. Uh, when I first saw that, I just I, I loved it immediately. For those who don't, do you want to give the, the a, a summary of the of the, the plot? No, I'm eager to hear you. Well, basically, <laughs> it, it's it's about a a, a a young lad who lives in the middle of of kind of uh, farmlands and. Uh, his uh there is a, a strange neighbor who uh is, is very pale played wonderfully by lindsay duncan and there's a kind of sense of is she mysterious and strange and uh then the the young boy's uh father is reading a vampire book the little boy starts to think that this woman may well be a vampire his older brother returns from uh nuclear testing in the uh, pacific and uh is beginning to have the effect of radiation sickness he also is having a relationship with lindsay duncan so of course the boy thinks that actually he's now his gums are bleeding and his hair's coming out because he's having his life sucked out by the vampire but at the same time there are also a group of child murderers driving through the wheat fields and killing various people it opens with this is my favorite thing about it and there's so many things apart from the utter beauty of it is it has that human quality which when you see beauty you marvel at the beauty and then you want to destroy it so the opening scene, which you talk about in in the, the documentary the DVD, these boys find this magnificent. It's not a cane toad, is it? What what kind of? It's a... No, I think it's an African uh, an African ball toad or something. Because what happened with that? Just to interrupt your flow. No, that's there, fine. Robert, I've, I, th- I hope I've given can, roughly I, the right. I, I, we can come back to the narrative. But what happened with that was the script says that the child walks through the wheat holding a frog. So of course we wanted a local frog. So we got local frogs and they were about six inches big. So I thought, well, that's not going to be big enough. So we went to the zoo and that was the largest frog stroke toad that they had in the zoo. Did you have to borrow a zoo toad? Well, you have to get kind of animal wranglers and animal feeders and all the other paraphernalia that goes around with it. So they do hire them out for films. I mean, so it's kind of one thing that they do. But that that toad had more kind of like um, entourage around it that day (laughs) than any any of us on that film set. Like 10 people turned up, you know, the uh, protection against cruelty to animals was there. Everyone was there. Makeup for the toad. No, there was was makeup for the toad. (laughs) Because it wasn't looking quite slimy enough, so it had to be up, so you know, so, so the KY came out and all of that kind of stuff. Really? Um, so we've got it kind of looking kind of uh, as toad as toad-like as possible, but but it's it's completely out of realism, of course. I mean, you know, there's no there's no kind of toads like that in America Midwest that you can stumble across. I mean, it is magnificent because it's basically we see a wheat field and then there is Seth Dove. Uh, 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 is he ten? Nine? Ten, ten? Yeah, ten? nine, ten. Yeah. And he's carrying this enormous, and and then all the boys go, "Oh, look at it! Look at it! Look at it!" And then like, "My turn! It's my turn!" And they inflate it. But can I say from that point onwards, it's a stunt, uh, not even a stunt toad, it is uh, a prosthetic toad. A prosthetic yes, toad. Uh, and, and they inflate it and just lie it on the path and then Lindsay Duncan comes to, to look at it. She's looking at this thing wobbling back and forth that's swollen and they fire a catapult and the blood just explodes all over her. And as you say, going, people went, mm, do you know what? A lot of people may well walk out at that point, yeah. but those who stay are going to fucking love it. <laughs> so th- it is, it's a, it's a, very dark, I suppose, fairy tale. You have a your, your use of character names, names like Seth Dove, or in the film that followed it, Darkly Noon. Mm. Can we talk a little bit about the the influence of that kind of the, the nightmarish visions of, of of childhood? Where where that came from? When what what were your influences? Well. I, I suppose that divides up into about five or six different answers, really, doesn't it? I mean, one of them is uh, my own childhood, I guess, that you have to kind of come back to. I was really, I was very sick as a child. I suffered from chronic asthma really badly. The asthma came on when I was about five. And it's the kind of asthma that is very rare now because medication is so much better for asthma, particularly for children, than it was. All I had at that time was this very bright pink medicine called Ethyldrine. Um, which I used to be uh, spoon-fed almost like every hour. 
Um, now, what we've found out since is that ethyldrene is almost like pure speed. I mean, it's kind of so. I, there was I, this five-year-old, huh. this five-year-old child <laughs> that was hyperactive anyway, being kind of spoon-fed this medicine, going completely crazy because I couldn't move because uh, I couldn't breathe properly in my bed most of the time propped up on pillows because if I like the elephant man you know the the end of the elephant man if yeah. he goes over backwards too far he starts to suffocate I couldn't lean back so I had to be I, I, I slept upright for about four years of my childhood propped up on pillows I couldn't lay back and um I had to kind of descend, really. The only way you can survive something like that, I think, is that you descend into your own world. You kind of create your own fantasy world around you. Because I didn't have any friends, because I wasn't at school long enough to make any friends. I would kind of go to school for like two or three weeks. Asthma always came on in the weather change, which is in September. Um, oh, God, the new school year. The new school year, start of the new term. So you would miss the beginning five or six weeks. You would arrive back as this kind of strange odd kid walking in that had made all, all the kind of little groups of friendships had already been made, wow. you know, all the all the bondings had happened. So I was always the kind of the outsider one on that. So I retreated, I guess, into a world that I created around myself, which was a mixture of my own kind of fantasy world and and the things that I was looking at reading at that time. And what I was reading a lot of were Spider-Man and X-Men. I mean, that was my big first major reading passion you know in the all of us that are readers have our kind of reading life don't we the, yeah. the first big thing oh when i was that age i read that and marvel comics were the first thing that i read that completely obsessed me and you know i've, I've said before that you know to friends and things that i can think back to my time sitting up in bed and spider-man is as real with me in that room as memories of my mum and dad and brother. I can wow. see him as vividly as I, I've got real memories. So all of that mixes and becomes one thing. And I guess, you know, as a starting point, that's where it all begins, really. It's interesting when you say comics, because I know people who go, oh, I'm trying to get my child off comics. They're just reading comics. And yet I know so many people who almost didn't like children's books when they were a child. They were, they were waiting for the adult books, but marvel in particular dealing with that those the outsider idea of you know peter parker and of course the x-men you know what brian singer did with the way that he adapted them well and the, the x-men were even more important weren't they because they mm. were born mutant mutant that you know most of the other kind of superheroes had something done to them that transformed them into kind of superheroes whether they're a bit as you say by radioactive spir- uh, spiders or kind of were in contact with something else that made mm. them how or found a kind of the, the thought of hammer uh, the hammer of thor that changed you into something uh, but you know the, I, I was also very close to the x-men i mean the spider-man was my first love my first passion but then the x-men were very close after that because they were born different and that's, you know, that's really how I kind of felt at that yeah. time. And you can translate that into any number of metaphors, as indeed the films have done since, as to what that refers to, can't you, really? But, but, no, but it makes so much sense, doesn't it, to have something where it's like, oh, these people are intrinsically outsiders like me. Yeah. I have got a gang that <laughs> understand me. Do you find now... Uh, having done the many things that you, you've done do you look back and think i'm you almost glad that you were the outsider child that to to be to be able to create your carapace of, of imagination that you can kind of go well do you know what it may be better than being part of the gang or is, is this one a bit of you which still goes oh do you know what just to be part of being... well i felt like that for a long time strangely enough i mean i felt what would i say like that i mean i felt that i did miss out on something um all the way through my teens, really, and I was kind of quite nostalgic for a childhood that I never had. So I was always yearning back. and Because th- I used to think it at the time, like, my brother was very popular and my brother had lots of friends, and I used to think, oh, what must it be like just to be sitting indoors and then have a knock on the door and it's a surprise visit from one of your mates come round? You know, what must it be like to just have that happening? And I never really had that. You know, I never really had that. I mean, I got it as I got a bit older, as I went into the teens and the kind of um, the, the asthma kind of wore off a bit. But I never had that really as a kind of much younger child. So I did miss it. But recently, I, I've been thinking that all the things that happened to me early on that I thought were, if you like, the curse of the childhood, the curse of my childhood was this, you know, I was ill and all of that, actually turned out to be the blessings mm-hmm. of the childhood because they did kind of help me... Um, you know, focus and create a world that kept me, kept me company and kept me alive. And also because you're doing that, because you're coming from that kind of environment in which you're having to do that, your antennas 
for what goes on around you becomes super sensitive. I mean, I think lots of writers have a very similar story of coming from a childhood that is slightly kind of broken in some kind of way, whether it be through an illness or family or whatever. It attunes you to kind of atmospheres in the room mm. and what people are saying and what you're going to say back. And you become attuned to something. You become attuned to other people's feelings because you're just so open to it. And the way that they feel will impact on you because you're very ill and you have to be looked after. To have someone walk in the room that's doing that, that's in a bad mood, is petrifying absolutely petrifying because they know they can you, they can take it out on you so you're always attuned to other people's feelings and i think that that yes i mean i think that has helped me a lot and also just the kind of you know as i kind of moved into you know doing stuff or i mean i was always doing drawings and writing stories but all that happened was that other people suddenly started to want to see and hear them as well so i've, I've only done what i've ever always done but all the things that seem to me to be or to other people to be problems um, about that work, i.e. oh, you're doing too much. You're doing too much for anyone to focus on one thing and you're doing this, you're doing that. Actually, now I have become the strengths of the work and what people find the most, in if they do find it interesting, a lot don't, that's fine. But, you know, it's kind of if they do find it interesting, they're quite intrigued by that. So what were the problems have now become in some ways the strengths, I guess. Hopefully, which is for people listening, because obviously, you know, some people listen to this and some of the people who come to the shows that Josie and I do, that, you know, are sometimes people who feel slightly marginalised or on, 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 on the outside. And, so, and I think it is a tremendous relief because I, I would agree, I don't know about you, Josie, which is the older you get and as you can choose your friends and you have greater control over your decisions. Yeah. I think that bit of going, do you know what? I'm so glad that I didn't fit in and I wasn't in the first team because hmm. rather than looking back and going, oh, those were great days, each year you go, yeah, there are bad things, but you got and the, all the things that had you being pushed in the puddle are now the things that mean you can thrive yeah. and do what you want to do. And Absolutely. I, I didn't realise how much I'd found a niche I'd, I'd found the good life for myself and then I did this I did this ridiculous thing where they dropped me on an island and you have to survive and it was like a celebrity thing. It was for charity and it was very exciting. But um, everyone else around me, I, I realised that like, oh, I am in a particular subculture of certain interests and I'm so happy and safe there. And it was like being back at school and I was like, oh, this is a thing that I've managed to get out of my life, you know? Like, yeah, it's, it's very we also do, I don't know if you two find this, that um, what I've found as well is the things that I became obsessed with when I was younger and the things that made me happy and the artists that I liked and the music that I liked has become the mainstream. Yeah. You know, for example, I was the, when I was a child, I didn't buy pop music or anything like that. The music that obsessed me was film music. Mm. I bought John Barry. I bought Jerry Goldsmith. I bought Ennio Morricone. I bought all the film scores. I was absolutely obsessed by film scores. I, it's the first thing still, even now, I look at on a film poster huh. is who's done the music. I'm, you know, so I'm obsessed. Now, no, no one in my class, you know, John Barry, who's that? You know, it's nobody, you know, he's done this. He's I, done exactly that. the same thing. Everybody but now, everyone, now people know what that music is. Mm. Mm. People know what John, you know, knew that music. You're a trailblazer. Yeah, well, there you go. <laughs> but, uh, but I think it's odd that kind of what was considered kind of like, Uber geekdom when we were younger. It's, it's kind of because I mentioned Philip K. Dick, who I used to read a lot of when I was young. No one else had heard of at that time. You know, what's this? You're reading science fiction. You know, th those days when science fiction was really poo pooed and looked down on, and it was like horror, horror. You know, you, you oh my god, horror was like kind of like oh my, you wouldn't be seen dead if you were a serious person reading yeah. a horror horror thing. That's become mainstream. So it's interesting the way that that's. I, I find it fascinating the way that that's happened. That all those things are now kind of in general conversation with people. I feel like there's been a real like diversifying of because of like you know it's that thing of like instead of three TV channels, there's an infinite number of expanding TV channels and stuff like that. But what it does mean is that everything can find enough of an audience so that it is part of the cultural discussion, you know? Yeah. So it's not like these things are like just tiny marginalised things to look down and it's like, no, everyone on earth who loves this thing can communicate with us and it turns out there's enough of us and it turns out that's a market or whatever, you know? That's that's, a, that's right, isn't it? Yeah, well, I, I don't know. <laughs> See, I think in, in, in one way... What actually is in the the enormous number of channels is quite limited, considering the amount there is. In fact, I, the, the channel I watch more often than not when I go around my dad's house is Talking Pictures TV, which is basically just all these very old British films, sometimes oh, big nice. films like Hell Drivers, starring Stanley Baker, Patrick McGowan, and Herbert Lom, oh, yes, which please. is fantastic. That's a great film. Oh, it's yeah. such! I watched it again the other day. Herbert Lom is one of my favourite actors. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah, but. 
the the modern stuff I'm not watching, but you were right about that little bit of finding people via different. Like I, I was banging on about this the other day, and, and obviously, you no, know, you you were at St Martin's. St Martin's, yeah. yeah. I went to see the Robert Rauschenberg exhibition. Mm, oh. It's bloody that bit where you go. Everyone in that exhibition. Have you seen it yet? No, no, but Rauschenberg's a huge influence. Sorry, yeah, but... No, yeah. will you talk about him? Because it's just... I knew almost nothing about him, and all I yeah. did was smile in every room going, yeah. this is bloody brilliant. Everything that was... And everyone looked like they were delighted to be there. And the thing that we talked about this the other week, that when he know. talked... I was watching an interview where he said that Jasper Johns and him just sat down, and they were kind of going, why does everyone have to say that art comes from pain? Let's make art from joy. Yeah, and yeah. Sometimes I look at someone who's found two extractor fans and stuck them onto a canvas and painted around them. I'm not really into it, but bloody hell, the uh, the, the the fans each stuck to a bit of canvas and painted round. That's the way he does it, and it's a fascinating. I mean, I'd I'd never really seen much of your art until I saw the the Reflecting Skin documentary, mm. and that is your influences there. So, can we talk just a little bit then about before we go into the the, the books and the films? But mm. your when when you were first painting what were the things again who were the people you thought these are this is where the stimulation has, has come from for me to experiment and to create these things well i've always drawn i've always you know in fact obviously drawing before i could write so when i was propped up in bed uh, my dad um, made me this special desk that fitted round me uh, he was very good with his hands, my dad, very good at carpentry. And he made this fantastic desk out of plywood that would fit around me, almost like Davros in the, you know, from the Daleks, you know, this thing that kind of was in front of me like this. So I could, and I ha and that's when I was at my happiest, was sitting up with, you know, um, something to drink, something to eat, and then a pile of notepaper and pencils and just feeling like I was in a cocoon of this kind of desk surrounding me and I would kind of do drawings and I would write things, both at the same time, you know, obviously doing drawings first felt tip pen and biro drawings which are two of, still two of the main things i use to draw in is, is biro and felt tip pens so i kind of uh had no real influences i don't think that were visual influences in terms of painters at that time the only painter that i was obsessed with and the first painter i became obsessed with was holbein who did the um all the tudor portraits and the reason that that was, was that Henry VIII and his six wives was on television. <laughs> and I was watching that and I became, that's how I became obsessed with the Tudor period of history. And then my local museum, which was the Bethnal Green Museum of Childhood, did a display of all the costumes that were in that TV series. A wonderful kind of exhibition that I went to see. And I went there every day for about a week and just sat there and did drawings of these um clothes that they wore in the show but mainly the things that i did drawings of were space monsters hmm. i created my own space monsters because i was obsessed obsessed with star trek and science fiction and i created fantasy landscapes and i did most of that up until the age of about 16 or 17 and i drew chimney i drew, drew the chimneys on the roof because i used to go up to the roof of the flats where i lived and spend all day there you know just to get some fresh air and because i couldn't go out and run around and play that was the safest place to be because i was away from the bullies if i went down to the streets i was beaten up so i had to go onto the roof and i used to draw the chimneys that were up there so it was, so my subject matter was a chimneys um space monsters and uh my mum's yucca plant probably those were the those were the things that were um uh the main thing and then when i was like 16 or 17 uh the school that i went to said to me um well, you should go on to study English because they had obviously picked up that I was very good at English. But my art teacher there, who's called Mary Driscoll, who was the first teacher that had a huge influence on me, um, said, no, you must go to, um, uh, to art school. So, um, and then I got no help after that because Mary became quite ill. And I worked out that the place that I, the best place to go from what everyone was saying and people were talking was St. Martin's School of Art in, in London. And so I kind of applied to get into there and you know cringe cringe went in with this kind of portfolio of felt, ah. felt it pen space monsters Amazing. And then, <laughs> after that you started to kind of deal with uh there's elements of kind of hollywood celebrity but then removed from it don't, don't you isn't that some of those images that they're, they're kind of the iconic uh, I can't, yeah well the, the because i just watched so many films you know it's um i mean i grew up in what you could refer to as a kind of strange golden period of bbc2 which i don't know if you remember this that you know they used to do seasons of directors films on a saturday night you know every saturday night there were two films for 
by Hitchcock for six weeks. You could see almost wow. you know, the entire major canon. There were seasons. I remember seasons of films of Bunuel, seasons of films of Jean Cocteau. Um, you know, this was great. This is something that's gone now. That doesn't seem to happen in that way. But I was educated mainly by the BBC through. Uh, I mean, I've always said this that the BBC contributed to my kind of primary education in mm. a way because I discovered Radio Three at the age of fourteen. Radio Four. They introduced me to Shostakovich, who's one of the biggest influences on me. You know, I still remember turning on the radio when I, for my mum and dad, first got me a radio for my bedroom, and it went into that moment silence before you get something happening. And what happened was the Shostakovich, Shostakovich Symphony Number no. Five, and I remained rooted to my spot for an hour. This is at fourteen years old, just going, "What is this?" You know, yeah. so that all of that kind of you know fed in to those influences. But the but the icon, iconography, in particular, the iconography of Elvis Presley has always been um, very important to me. I remember seeing a photograph of him in the gold lame suit that he did and just thinking it was the most incredible looking human being I have ever seen. It was like if we had a, a someone that looked like a modern god, then that's what they would look like. And that image of Elvis Presley in the gold and Marilyn Monroe as his kind of almost direct contemporary female equivalent, these two images of sort of... Um, rippled through the work ever because I was obsessed with them, absolutely obsessed with them. My favourite Elvis thing was when the comedian Tim Vine uh, decided he'd do Elvis at uh, an event and he'd be 68 comeback special Elvis in a vinyl version of that leather suit and he had to wait an hour to go on and it was a summer's day. He looked awful by the time he got on. Um, My favourite Shostakovich is uh, the Yevgeny Yevtoshenko one. It's about 13. Yes, I think it is. So good. I think it is. Incredible. But they're all fantastic. I used to go into school raving about this kind of like music. And I remember, I mean, this again shows you how time has changed. I went up to my music teacher at the time, you know, and he was a kind of East End kid interested in classical music. You would think that would be encouraged anyway, you know. Mm. So I went up and I said to my teacher, um, oh, I'm really kind of interested in the music of Shostakovich. And he went, oh, well, oh, dear. Oh, well, look, um, <laughs> If you must go Russian, uh, <laughs> this, this is true. This is word for word. If you must go Russian, perhaps Prokofiev is the way to go. What? I might allow you some of Rachmaninoff, but only in the piano concertos. And what if you go hipster. anywhere, if you go anywhere near Kachaturian, you're in instant detention. This is you had a proto hipster East End teacher. That's kind he of he was too cool for school. <laughs> I mean, that's just kind of you know he just ruled Shostakovich out as being a serious kind of composer completely. It's just it was but just gimmicks. But do you know as well? I think like and only because you're slightly older than I am, but also I didn't realise that like how contemporaneous Shostakovich is really because in my yeah. head when I was growing up you think of classical music and you go that's 1820 yeah. you know, <laughs> know. and I then know. you realise that like he's responding to Stalin and he's responding to the Second World War and things like this and it's like so, so it's like it's very frustrating to think that someone wasn't going look at this incredible thing that's been written 30 years ago or whatever and, I know. Oh. Well, he, of course, he was still alive, and, and that was one of the big um, fascinations for me because I, here I was discovering for myself, you know, this music that really spoke to me and I really loved, and it was a classical composer who was living. Wow. You know, and that for me was... And I wanted to find out more. And of course, these were the days before the internet, so you, you, that you couldn't just kind of Google him and find out everything that you had. There were no books in the library. And also, you can't listen to it unless it's on the radio. Exactly, you can't. I mean, and you can't, you can't listen to it unless you're... Uh, your dad drives you into the West End to the one classical music shop that was stocking classical music because no record shop in East London had that kind of, you know, they barely did soundtracks. You know, if you went to the sound... I remember I went to the soundtrack section once and it had Goldfinger and Line in Winter, both by by John Barry. That was the only two soundtracks that it had. Now you can... You know, the soundtrack section is huge in any kind of, like, store. Generally, the soundtrack section used to be that uh, revolving thing where it would be 199 or 225. It was either, I forget the name of the, the guy who did versions of For a Few Dollars More and Fistful of Dollars, yeah, uh, yeah. Hugo Montenegro. Hugo I think Montenegro, it was. and it's the music for pleasure. Music for yeah, pleasure. music for pleasure. And yeah. then Jeff Love does the suspense movie themes. Jeff Love does the James Bond That's themes. Right. And that, that was it. And which are now incredibly enjoyable, kitschy things. Yeah, yeah. And it does, and they some of them have fantastic covers. But it is disrespectful to the art that that's what they were selling, isn't it? That they like, yeah, yeah. 
What's is it, is it easier now? I mean, that's the thing I wonder, which is because talking about some of these things, I think it's very quick that people will say that liking anything like that is somehow pretentious. To like things that, you know, Stuart Lee talked about that, I think, in one of his shows, which is if, if you like something that's magnificent, it's as if, well, why aren't you just enjoying Strictly? Why are you trying to like these things? Which are, and, and I wonder whether that's got easier, you know, I think in your, your work with Arts Emergency and trying to, you know, say to people, you can do different things. Yeah. You can, you know, the, the, to encourage people to explore. And the fact that even you, your music teacher's going, oh, hang on, not just to COVID. <laughs> well, they wouldn't say that now, would they? I mean, that's the difference. You know, I mean, I went to quite a, an old-fashioned, well, not an old-fashioned, but it was... You know, we're talking about 60s and 70s. So you're dealing with teachers then who are like 50 years old. So you go back to what is their past, really. That's what informed them. So they're going back to when they were 20. So He was disappointed that you weren't like a jazz heroin fiend. I think, no, I think he was disappointed that I just wasn't kind of like doing, falling in love with the music that he was playing in his music classes, you know, (laughs) which was kind of Beethoven and Mozart and and all of that, you know, which is equally fantastic. But there's a difference between what you recognise as being magnificent and all of that and then the work that speaks directly to you. You know, so I can play Mozart and say, yeah, absolutely, there's some of it I love, but it doesn't really blow my skirt up in the way that Shostakovich blows my skirt up. I, I listened to Shostakovich and I understood it. You know, even at the age of 14, when I first heard the symphony number five, I was saying to myself, this is about absolute pain. You know, this is about somebody who's really suffering and this is being beaten around the head by somebody to have a good time. You know, I just I just got it. I just knew what he was trying to say. And that's a fantastic kind of um, feeling when that happens. That's kind of transformative to you, I think, that you kind of because, you know, all art is just one mind trying to speak to another mind. And if you're lucky that connection happens. And when it does, that's that's kind of, you know, uh, a life-changing moment in many ways. And yes, you know, some of talking like this and some of reacting to art like this is can always be labelled pretentious, but so what? You know, what is pretentious 10 years ago is not pretentious now and might not be in 10 years' time. Mm-hmm. So you can't get caught up in how other people perceive how you're perceiving things. You just have to open yourself to perceive. <laughs> well, I want to briefly, Matt, because I, I, I think that's true, And but when mentioned Robert Rauschenberg, you... Obviously, a big fan and admirer, and I wonder what is it about again his work? What is it about his approach that? Because I, I said I almost knew nothing about him until I walked into that room. Well, he ticked like a few huge boxes for me when I was at St Martin's, all of which I was in the midst of trying to work out for myself. One, he was working in different medium, so he's working in different media. He was, you know, doing these combines, paintings, and sculptures. He was doing dance. He was doing music. He he kind of, and that's what I was interested in. I didn't put anything in a label. Secondly, he was gay, you know, and there's, oh my God. <laughs> and he was going out with another man who was also an artist, uh, a painter, you know, so all of those kind of things. Oh my God, this, ma- uh, you know, I'm not alone. I am not alone in the universe. You know, there's this yeah. guy that was quite open about his sexuality that made it part of his work that this group did. Um, and the work was breaking down barriers and the work was about the passion of being alive. You know, I found it very sexy work. I've had it really sexy and erotic work and humorous work. I mean, there's the great, um, you know, the the, um, the idea that the kind of ram through the car tire thing is a great oh, symbol of, amazing. you know, but, you know, is it a great symbol of homosexual love? You know, it's kind of and all of that fascinated me, you know, that you could find these images that expresses what your life is. So he just kind of blew open. And that's not to say that necessarily the work that I did was like his, you know, but it's like. He just opened doors of me thinking, oh, oh, okay, other people have done it. It's fine. It, I'm not such a kind of odd thing that I'm being told. Because, you know, the the, the danger of a lot of uh, institutionalised education is that it was well, not so much now, but then it was all in compartments. You know, I was told by the head of painting or one of the previous heads of painting that had come to visit me when I was studying painting at St. Martin's that painting meant putting oil paint on the end of a brush and applying it to canvas. Gosh. that's how you define painting you know and here was I taking photographs and doing Polaroid kind of like combines and doing performance poetry and not touching paint for you know terms at a time so Rauschenberg was in all of all of the artists that I discovered at that time were just so kind of special and they make you less lonely you know they make you less lonely. just like watching your favorite film can make you less lonely you know they become as part of your life as people that you know and fall in love with, I think. Perhaps more so. 
that the, the the goat or the ram, whichever it is, yeah. is great. It's, you'll really enjoy it, Judge, because it's basically there's a tire, there's a load of kind of you know painting around it, and they have a little bit about the process. And he said he had real because he found it in this shop, like a junk shop, I think. He said he only paid half the money. He said I'll come back, and he went back six months later when he had the rest of it, and it closed down. Yeah. So he still has this kind of like, oh, maybe maybe my lack of having enough goat money was. <laughs> but he said this is <laughs> lovely sure. thing where he goes. He says for ages he was going, no, that's still just to go on some art. And actually getting it to mix with it so it became as one. And again, just seeing that, that there's nothing... He's there and he's going, well, I've painted around the goat and I've stuck the tar on, but it's still... They're separate things. And again, you don't notice it. You just keep looking at it and you go, yeah, there's some... Well, how has he managed to click it all together yeah. through this... Or boxes. I love his boxes. Oh, the boxes he, he, they're just cardboard boxes that he's kind of folded out and then they're... And so they totally change the way you look at a box. Right. And all and, found. I mean, all yeah. just things that he finds on the street and kind of puts up there. You know, he's like the DNA. You know, in Rauschenberg, we've got the DNA of where most art went from there. I mean, wow. most kind of the art that we've seen. Just like, you know, I, I think um, there's a couple of artists like that, that you kind of look at them and you kind of think, oh, my God, just one of his ideas are enough to fuel a completely different artist for the rest of their career. Yeah. You know, just one of those ideas you kind of like you take away and uh, it can become a whole life's journey for someone else because it was like there's so many ideas to deal with. But do you feel like different artists have different kind of functions for society? Because like, I, I think, so what you were saying about him was he didn't want to specialise and whenever people tried to kind of praise him for a particular style, he would be like, get rid! They're, they're onto me and so like, so you think some artists, their their kind of job for humanity is to do as much as they can in different styles, and then some people are like, um, my thing forever is miniature. I suppose I'm answering my own question. It's good that there's two different types of people. But I don't think. I I I mean, what I would say is, do we think that that's a conscious decision? You know, and I don't think well, it's it just is. Your personality type. I, ju I just think you know every artist is just trying to work out how do I keep on working. Yeah. You know, and for you know Van Gogh, it might have been that for the rest of my life I do sunflowers and you know, and I do kind of fields and that's it. Um, but for some artists, how do I keep working? How do I keep my? So it's not like oh, I'm, I, I would actually much rather still do. You know, I'd, I'd rather spend a lifetime sticking goats through tires. Um, <laughs> but actually, I did. I, I deliberately forced myself not to do that, and I would do something else. It's like no, what do you do? to keep yourself still because you have to kind of completely self-motivate you have to wait yeah. you know you don't go to an office and there's a manager there or someone in charge saying right now I want you to paint this it's like you've got to wake up and you've got to do it off your own back so what do you do to keep on working and I think it's not sort of a conscious yeah. decision I think it's like it's you're the dream state that you're in in order to keep dreaming the dreams that mean something to me I just instinctively do this. I don't think that Rauschenberg sort of woke up one morning and said, oh, I've done enough of that. Ah, oh, ah, oh, dance. I'll become interested in dance. I'll become interested in choreography. It's just that he was always interested in that. And that's yeah. what could keep him kind of self-motivated, I think. Because that's what it's like for me. I don't consciously think, oh, I've got to really... You just end up you end up doing it. I think, you know, you're a new... Every kind of like five or seven years, we're a new person. You know, and it's like, oh, it's like I'm not doing what I did. But if I did do what I did, that's still fine. <laughs> So you're, in terms of your, well, I think, what's your, your first uh, novel was Eyes of Mr. Fury? No, the first one was called Crocodilia, which right. I wrote while I was still a student. But then there was a big gap. I wrote it when I was about 20, 21, something like that. And then it went to, and I was told by a lot of tutors, oh, you must get this published. And I gave it to a publisher. But then there was a big gap between giving it to them, as there often is, between the publisher getting it and then publishing it. So it ended up that that was almost published round about the same time as the second novel, In the Eyes of Mr. Fury, which is where that confusion, I think they came out within a year of each other. And you had one of those, that weird time where there was these, these very flamboyant, was, was it Penguin who made these really the flamboyant covers? The originals. The yeah, original, yeah, yeah, the originals. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah the, the Penguin set off, I mean, years ahead of their time to Penguin's credit, really. They, they did this new edition of paperbacks called Penguin Originals, in which was a different format with kind of book flaps, paperback book flaps on either side. Um, with quality paper and these specially designed covers to actually transform the paper back into a collectible item that people would want to keep. And uh, Mr. Fury was, I think, one of the first ones that came out in that um, in that series, yeah. Do you think there's been a, uh, a problem for you or does it not matter, the fact that you are... You're making films. You're writing young adult fiction, which has been incredibly popular. You're short stories. You're, you're creating different forms of art. Uh, 
is do you think sometimes that the again when like I suppose the Rashmore thing not being able to just go Philip Ridley does this yeah. is means that people is is that a problem or do you think that's actually what may draw people to your work is just going who knows what he's going to do this time well i think it's i think there's a couple of well, it, well it's not a problem for me <laughs> it's, it's all, it, and i was surprised when it was referred to as being a problem and the only time it it was first a problem when i did my first interview about something because i think there's something about the way art is in a dialectic in with with people the way it's perceived and the way it's um, written about in newspapers you know and i blame the kind of sunday supplements and all of this that everything has a theater section art oh. section book section as if all of us are not infl- so if you write a stage play you're reviewed by people or do interviews with people that are in that section and it's inconceivable to them that your stage play might have been influenced by the paintings of de Chirico. Yeah. one they've never heard of de Chirico anyway So you can only be influenced by other playwrights. So it all becomes this kind of snake eating its own tail kind of thing. And then also, say you then write a stand-up show, you're reviewed by different reviewers who have not seen your play. So then they're like, he's done this. And you're like, well, of course, because if you saw my thing 10 years ago, you'd see that, you know. And also, I don't know if, you know, and if you found this, that, you know, what happens is, is that you're set up with an interview because you've got a new film out or a new stage play out and the person setting the publicity person set, doesn't like you talking about other things because that's publicity for your other stuff that yeah. might be out at the same time you have to purely talk about what you're so it all becomes kind of in these different compartments and it was only when as i began to say earlier that it was only when i started doing interviews that i realized that it was a problem for presentation more than anything else i don't think it's a problem i've never had anyone come up to me after i've done a q a session or anything like that who likes the work find that as a problem at all you know it's like some of them like this some of them like that some of them like a combine of the things but for them it's not a problem and also there's so sorry i'm on a kind of rant here can well, you, you know what? This is exactly what this was made for. <laughs> but it's like the number of artists that do it anyway i mean david lynch paints and makes film. you know it's like it's just not talked about you know the number of artists dh uh, lawrence was a painter you know, and it's, it's, it's what it people means. do it. Well, exactly. Like, it's what it means to be a creative person is that you Absolutely. love creative things yeah. and that you have a lot of creative urges and you want to dabble in all kinds of mediums. Like, of course, it's like it's like you wouldn't say to a sportsman, like, well, you're a rugby player, but I've heard that you also run <laughs> because you'd be like, of course, that's what you love. You love sports yeah. and your body and stuff. And so it makes perfect sense. I like that thing. There's a um, the, the great uh, Japanese uh, film director and comedian Takeshi Gitano who is just this incredible... And you can't really understand it in this country when his films are shown because in... And it's where Takeshi's castle comes from. Yeah, Beat Takeshi, where he was like this kind of really mainstream slapstick comic and then he started to make these existential gangster dramas. Mm -hmm. And in Japan, initially, it was like... What's he doing? Stop it. This is not... And then he makes these incredible kind of naive paintings. And then he suddenly goes, now I'm going to tap dance to Stand By Me, which is bloody brilliant, by the way. He's also in Battle Royale. But that, I just find... You know, that, that moment of, as if Peter Greenaway also sometimes, you know, well, actually that wouldn't be a, he would probably sometimes work as a clown, wouldn't he? I could imagine him as a garish clown with kind of different dead animals coming out of buckets being hurled at you. You're not going to get booked again for a children's well, party. That. I, I would, would definitely. I've suddenly realised. Why doesn't Peter Greenaway do more Billy Smart's work? But isn't yeah. there some analogy to be drawn with, like, Ed Balls going on Strictly? Like, there's always... No, but what I'm saying is, there's always room we'll wait for, for a surprise... No, but there's always room for a surprise casting manoeuvre in culture. There's always room for, like, the guy from Play School in Australia being cast in Wolf Creek. No, but the difference yeah, the is that's contrived. The difference is that that's a conscious yeah, that's decision true. to do that. I mean, I don't think artists work like that, but, oh, what shall I do that surprise people? Because they can't think like that because it might be a pile of crap, you know, and it might not... It's got to be coming from them. I mean, I don't think Ed Balls woke up that morning and said, you know, I've always wanted to really explore my politics through the means of dance. So I... But I just think it's about presentation. It's about we're not used to seeing it presented like that and that becomes i mean the interesting thing for me is that when i did the pitchfork disney which was the first stage play which is in 1991 and i got a lot of flack for it i mean it was kind of critics thought it was all of this you know but the main thing was was that it came out after the two films it came out the craze had come out the year before and the reflecting skin came out the year before so when i did the first stage play 
it was perceived as, oh, my God, well, you'd never got it off the ground anyway, were it not for the fact that he's just had two feature films out and everyone, you know, which is rubbish, you know, as if anyone thinks like that. But what they didn't bother to find out was that I'd been doing monologues, theatre monologues, for the 10 years before I had done the feature films. I went up to Edinburgh every year from 1981 onwards, almost until 1988. I'd been going up to Edinburgh doing monologues. So I'd done theatre, you know, and then after that, I did a, a children's book, Crindle Cracks, that became a, a hit. And oh, now he's... And they forgot that I didn't. I, I'd published my first children's books in 1988, hmm. so it's like it's just this. It's like this spotlight goes around and picks you up at a certain moment, and everyone thinks it starts at that certain moment, hmm. without realizing that actually there's a kind of pedigree and a background to these stories. I think all you can do with all of that stuff as well is just keep working on your own and just be like, oh, your your response to me is ridiculous. I shall keep making stuff. Yeah. You know. Well, you've got the Sarah when, when there was the you know things like shopping and fucking and blast and stuff. And I was reading there was a little bit where you kind of also then got people want to put you into a group. They want to turn you. Uh, I can't remember what that was called now. In that. your face writing. Yeah, the, yeah. There was that. It's a you know which is a way of people sort of like getting a grip on it, I suppose. But I'd done three plays before in your face even started, and but when in your face was happening, I was writing uh, plays for young people. I was doing Sparkle Shark and. Other plays, so it's. Uh, I mean, I don't. I don't think. Honestly, I don't think you can think about it really because y- you l- you learn, don't you, that you're so not in control of the way you're perceived outside what you're doing anyway. That it's like, for for example, for the past few years, I would say that the spotlight in terms of what I've been doing perhaps has been on the uh, stage plays. You know, but before that, it was on the children's books, and before that, it was on the films, and then with the release of uh, the Blu-ray of the Reflecting Skin last year, it sort of like came back to the films again, and it's like you can't control any of that really. So you just hope that you're doing um, work that people find interesting and kind of re- relate to, and it means something to them. But you can't control how how that's kind of um, put out really. Do you ever find it there just is the the the, the I. I see you as such an incredibly creative creative individual that you just go i haven't got time to create everything that to actually you look at that i i I could see this kind of insane collection of post-it notes glued on the ceiling (laughs) etc going i still haven't done that play and then there was going to be that selection of strange haikus and then there was going to be and i'm I'm doing this painting and i'm typing with this hand but all the books you want to read as well i mean i mean you know i mean how i'm sure we've all got piles by our bedside table things that we probably won't ever get around to until 2024 or something you know there's what's just... your book that you think oh god another year's passed and i still haven't done because we were talking about <laughs> we were definitely going to do our james joyce ulysses special oh, well, oh, that's gone that. by the by no i've done that i mean i've done a lot of the biggies because i was ill for so long the biggies are what got me through so all the ones that people come up to me and say oh my god if you've done war and peace if you've done ulysses if you've done sort of like the limits i've done all of those i'm kind of um i i have different uh, or can we talk about kind of reading habits for a yeah, second? Yeah, yeah. Because I've just kind of thought that I have different reading habits because there's certain things that I can read at certain times. For example, if I'm writing something, I can't read a, an author that's got too much of a flavour that's too distinctive because I end up sort of like writing like him or her. <clears throat> you know, so when I'm in the midst of writing something, that's my kind of like self-treat that I just read thrillers and, you know, uh, beach books, really, because it's kind of purely plot-driven. What kind of things are we talking about? What well, we're talking about Patricia really Cornwall. Love. Nice. Um, who I adore. I, th- I still think Postmortem is one of the best thrillers um, ever written. That was her first book. And I remember that, you know, the Postmortem is one of those books that you read that you can remember where you were, what the weather was, huh. what the feel of that book was, what was going on. Postmortem is that. So I read a lot of that. I read a lot of Stephen King and I reread a lot of Stephen King. I think st- but particularly kind of um, some of the shorter ones by Stephen King. I think some of them have got a bit long, but definitely all those books that I read when I was a teenager into my early 20s, I've I've gone back to time and time and time again. I think he's really incredible. So I read those kind of things. And, um, oh, the C.J. Sansom Shardlake novels set in the Tudor period, I adore. So those kind of like keep me company through those periods but i can't read anything that has too much of a flavor through them and when i'm really sick when i'm really ill and this goes back right to my childhood i read agatha christie that's your comfort reading that's my comfort (laughs) also it just christie seems to engage with if i'm really ill the part of the brain that is still active that can still just do that 
kind of thing, you know, because the, the style is so clear and uncluttered and so simple, um, you know, which is one of the reasons that she wrote, which is she wanted to write for a post-First World War kind of readership that didn't want to be, that wanted something easy and smooth mm. and clear that she could get, that they could get through without worrying too much. And so even, so I have... Uh, my, my parents always used to bring me like three or four Ag when they felt an asthma attack was coming on I used to get three or four Agatha Christie novels that would kind of like see me through that period so I still read Agatha Christie when I'm reading oh. sorry I find this kind of reading habits fascinating no, no, yeah, I love that's what we it's kind, it's kind of just the MO of this yeah it's just like what people read at certain times yeah. it's like because I've got a terrible habit. We were talking about this the other day where I we, we did a kind of the best of, you know, what we'd enjoyed reading in 2016, not necessarily from 2016. And I was the pile of books which I've started, and I haven't stopped reading them because I stopped uh, enjoying them. Mm. I've gone, oh, now I want that, now I want that. And I realised that my totally ridiculous, fractured kind of head is that it's because I don't, you know, I finish very few things because I suddenly get excited by another idea. So yeah. therefore I know nothing. Well, I've just found that, like, this year obviously has been very stressful in an existential way and I found it was only kind of in the last couple of months that I've been able to get back to reading and suddenly I had this appetite for reading in my head felt I so clear for it. I found that a bit I thought there was so much that was in the world to worry about and yeah. kind of fret about and was giving me sleepless nights that I'd mm. found the, I did find my level of concentration going mm. that I would get almost like get impatient with something because I wanted to get back to having a dialectic about what was going on in here and in yes. America and yeah. you know and Aleppo and all of the terrible things that are happening um so it, it's strange the way that that happens that I, and, and I've spoken to a lot of people that felt like that I know a good friend of mine just hasn't painted for a, a year because you it's know just too much. it's just kind of there's so much you you don't know how to assimilate that through to make an image that would make sense of the zeitgeist really it's kind of very a very difficult thing to well, do it's a problem what's the point i yeah. found that that i couldn't i immediately read great gatsby after uh, uh, the trump mm. victory mm. i thought i'm going to read something that i studied at a level and just see how it's changed now that i'm 47 years old yeah see how that but yeah creativity is is it's tricky uh, yeah and you have with to comedians because i think about how wonderful john oliver's show was and what great polemic it was and how funny it was and how it made you know so many good points and then trump won and you sort of think, and like maybe that sounds too silly, but you do feel a bit like, gosh, like even in that, that's not got enough influence. <laughs> you know, yeah. I wish at that. But also I found uh, what I've just started reading is I bought a book when I was at university of poetry of the 30s. And it was because like one week we were, I did English and one week we were studying Auden. And, you know, so I was like, oh, I'll get that. And then I didn't really read it. I was just like, oh, well, there we go. That's that. And now I'm like reading it, you know, it's chilling, but it's also kind of helpful and beautiful and interesting. And as an adult reading that now with this context and understanding that context, I'm getting so much from it. I recommend it to you. It's like, I think it's a penguin or Faber poetry of the, the penguin. It's, the penguin it's got Auden on the front. But that is that excitement of just, of, of sometimes going, okay, we're not going to change the world, but someone's just seen a thing. And that, you know, when you go into an art gallery, when you go and see a great movie, when you see that movie that, you know, Reflecting Skin is in that group of films that I watched, I went, oh, if I had talent, I'd have made that. I want to make that. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like Hal Hartley movies, when I first saw a Hal Hartley film, reading about the same time. And I went, oh, look how he started by having a thing that says meanwhile, just as a pic. And then, but, it just says but. Ah, oh, I wanted to make that. I feel like that. I'm glad girls. someone else has the capability because I have no way of translating that from my head because it doesn't exist in my head. Yeah. It exists in there. And that yeah. giving of, of just joy and delight and and then you if you give up that's what they want they want that the, you know all those people they want that you, you all of you in this room all you stinking liberal media elite <laughs> they don't want you getting your paintbrush out well fuck them this is what this is oh, my so new thing. Is what I was talking about on stage best. last night is that we have to be aggressively kind. We've talked about that before. Mm. That bit I was reading a bit of Kurt Vonnegut again on stage, uh, and uh, it was just that bit of going right. I tell you what's going to show them. We're going to be really fucking nice. <laughs> yeah, that's what we're going to do. You do but, that, and I'll beat up fascists, and between us, we'll get it sorted. Who have you? I'm joking. We've got to run out of time. I know, but I'm just very. I want to. Uh, sorry, but I was going to ask you about Andrew Wyeth, but there's no time to do that. Um, but who is it that you've? What have you seen where you think, oh, now that 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 positive envy? You know that delight that someone's made it, but you think, oh, if I could have done. When that. you go, oh, my stuff is all babies that babies have made, <laughs> and they've made a grown-up <laughs> thing. 
<laughs> well, I tend to feel that all the time, really, to be honest. It's um, it's it's difficult to kind of pin down those kind of moments because sometimes they, for me, happen in retrospect more than in the moment that you kind of, you know, a week later you go, oh, sometimes a year later you go, oh, my God, I can't, I can't get that out of my head. It's... um. It's an old it's it's an old thing that I've been doing uh, or looking back on some older films and they recently released um all of the Andrei Tarkovsky canon on Blu-ray and I re- rewatched all of them in a weekend and just thought well that why am I bothering really I mean anything that can possibly be said imagistically has been said in those works and they're just mind blowing you know so I mean I would put forward that experience I remember seeing Mirror for the first Mirror his first film uh, not his first film but one of his early films I think Ivan's Childhood was before that but um, I saw that when I was at St Martin's and we I went with two friends and we couldn't leave our seats afterwards we were just sitting there just going you know going back to art school <laughs> How? What do we do? You know, in, what do we do? Can, what can we do that kind of compares to that? So, um, so I would put forward that, but uh, it's always it's always happening to me. It happens to me with kind of sometimes big commercial films as well. You know, and I love big popcorn films. It's kind of I I adore them. But you sometimes sit there and think, oh, I want to do something. I want to do something like that. That's speaking to two thousand people at the same time, and everyone's on their feet cheering at the end oh, of it. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, why can't I do something like that? Yeah. <laughs> um, thank you very much, and uh, we well, thank you, Josie. Thank you, Robin. And um, what what's the next thing? Uh, that people what's the, the the next bit of your work that's going to be available well they can come and see um the next thing that's happening which is um at the shoreditch town hall in east london mm. the director jamie lloyd is doing a revival of my first play the pitchfork disney and a new work which is a collection of some monologues called killer and that opens in january next year brilliant thank you very much thank you thank you <laughs> Thank you very much to all our supporters, both our Patreon and PayPal. And we would like to thank the following Patreon supporters this week. They are Joe McLachlan, William Thomas Whitehouse, Rachel Fullard, Shona Clayland, Laura Wood, Jamie Oliver, Mark Kazansky and Karen McMillan. And this week's Box of Books winner is Philip Burrow. So congratulations to Philip. You can get in touch with us on Twitter at Cosmic Genome or go to CosmicGenome.com slash contact and send us an email and we'll get your prize out to you. And if you'd like to be in the running to win a box of books each week, you can become a patron of Book Shambles as well. Go to CosmicGenome.com slash shambles and you'll find the Patreon and PayPal links there as well as reading lists and past episodes and everything else. And you can also head to CosmicShambles.com and sign up for the mailing list there. That site will be launching later in January and is going to be a new digital hub full of podcasts and documentaries and web series and all sorts of other stuff from Robin and Josie and me and the Cosmic Genome team. Thanks very much for listening and supporting the show. We'll be back with another new episode next week. Josie Robin's Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions. (laughs) 